hosted by Horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going In Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon. From BRL Equine, the people that bring you EPO Equine, Unlock, and Bleeder Shield, now comes Flexify HA, the most advanced scientifically-based joint supplement on the market. To find out more, contact me, Joseph Volante, at 215-501-6880. To be the best, give them only the best. BRL Equine. Hey everyone, welcome to the Going in Circles live show. We're back after a one-week hiatus, kind of a uh, preliminary break before the big meets in Saratoga and Del Mar take over next week. Uh, today we have two guests. Uh, we're going to talk first to my friend John Scheinman, who's got a, a novella out. I have to ask him the difference between a novel and a novella. But uh, he has written a story that has a, a horse racing um, theme, <laughs> I guess you would say. Uh, set, uh, you know, we'll, we'll let John talk about that when, uh, when we have him on here, just a few minutes. Uh, but um, he's got some, uh, some really you know, great reviews already. And uh, it just literally just came out a few days ago. But uh, we'll talk to him about... Uh, about the book, the process, uh, you know, what his inspiration was. And, um, you know, we'll hear from him about, uh, I'm sure, a couple other topics because if there's one thing that John is not, is, he's not shy. He's perfectly willing to give his take on most, uh, most anything, especially racing related. So we'll have John on in just a few minutes. And after him, uh, my friend Carlo Vecareza. From now, <laughs> originally from Italy, but uh, now uh, located in, in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, trains trains a few horses. Uh, but he's got um, his his signature restaurant, Frank and Dino's uh, Lexington, getting ready to open pretty soon. A couple of weeks, hopefully, we'll talk to him about when uh, when he thinks that. Uh, will be up and running and, and the people of central Kentucky will be treated to actual Italian food. Unlike some of the, the just awful Italian food in Lexington, Kentucky for the most part, just awful. That was the biggest, the biggest thing for me when I relocated to Kentucky was, um, at least back then, 20 years ago, Kentucky was a, culinary wasteland man it was it was fast food city um but uh frank and dino's is, is gonna it's gonna spruce up the lexington market and and give uh give us uh us native new yorkers a place that we can go and uh and and feel like we're getting a a real italian meal but uh we'll also talk to him about some racing stuff uh Find out what's what's going on with his 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 famous Breeders' Cup winner, Little Mike, who I think is out at uh, old um, at, at the retirement home in uh, with Michael Blow and old friends in Lexington. So we'll have him uh, just a uh, a few minutes uh, after after John joins us uh, today. Oaklawn Park made a, a 
announcement about they're going to uh, add some stake races, which is probably not not what we need. I, I mean, I'm I'm having a a, a weekly tirade on how many uh, unnecessary stake events we currently have that that's really kind of um, taking away from from some of the ones that that should matter a little more and uh, diluting the fields just with the overlap uh but oaklawn has a ton of money um and they have extended their meet already they've they've made the announcement they're going to start in december uh it's going to be about six months now at oaklawn and they've bumped the purses for the arkansas derby and probably more important uh they moved the the date of the arkansas derby to five weeks prior to the to the Kentucky Derby, which is a big difference considering that they've traditionally been a kind of the last major preps or part of the last round of major preps being three weeks before the Derby. But uh, they've decided to to make the move um, back and they've shuffled their other stakes, the Southwest, the um the Rebel, the Smarty Jones, uh, the Smarty Jones now will be held. Well, this year I, I believe it, it actually falls on uh, January first, uh, so they'll have a stake a month prep for uh, the Kentucky Derby, the the Oaklawn Park Road, which is going to be a very lucrative road. I believe the Smarty Jones is now two fifty. Uh, I think the 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 Southwest is seven fifty. The Rebel I think is seven fifty and. Um, and now the Arkansas Derby is one point two five million dollars, which, when you consider it, I mean those are those are frighteningly high purses, and uh, you know something to really shoot for. As Oaklawn Park uh, has really capitalized on their good fortune, um, and you know used their 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 slot profits, and, and basically this is where you know the money's coming from. Um, they've used it to really expand their racing program, and I think that's that's important um, because you know it could be. I mean, it, it could be said, and they wouldn't be wrong. That in a lot of areas we've kind of not used the money um, to the benefit of racing. Yes, purses have increased a lot. Uh, some of the you know, some of the overnight purses have, have increased a lot, and that's always um, a positive to, when people have a chance to get um, enough money to, to reinvest in the business and, and not to lose all the time. Because owning horses is still hard, even if the purses are really, really high. There's so many things that can go wrong and there's only one thing can go right. But um, Oaklawn has really should be commended. They've increased the quality of their racing program and... Um, you know they're doing it uh, with all dirt, which uh, on a in this day and age, it's not an easy thing to do is, is have a a racing meet of that length, uh, of that quality without any turf racing because turf racing is is so dominant in some areas of our country. But um, uh, you know the, the 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 meat is getting bigger, it's gotten stronger, and uh, I would be surprised if um, if we didn't see. Some names that uh, haven't traditionally been uh, associated with 
Oaklawn showing up there this uh, this winter. I mean, now it's a it's a literal winter meet. So so we'll see, we'll see. Uh, John, uh, are you on the line? I sure am. How? Listen, congratulations on the book, uh, the novella. Uh, I I kind of opened up the show asking. What's the difference between a novel and a novella? Well, a novella isn't going to take you as long to read as a novel. <laughs> so if you don't like it, you can just pitch it quick. Um, no, I actually, I actually wanted to write a novella. I thought as the story was developing, and my book is called Bow Harbor Blues, I, I said, you know what, I, everything I need is here. I, and if people are saying write a novel, I'm just going to be padding my story. And um, I said I could do this as a book, whether this is what most people are doing or not. And I'm doing it my way, so it's working out. So Bal Harbor Blues is is the name, right? And um, you're down in Florida, you know Bal Harbor. I, I do. As a matter of fact, the cover of your book has a, a hotel, Hotel Clifton. Yep. That's an actual place. That's not a, yep. a uh, that's not a made up place. That Hotel Clifton actually is in Miami Beach. That's right. And the characters they move from Bow Harbor to Miami Beach. And I, Chuck, I tell you what, I probably sifted. I mean, without exaggeration, a thousand pictures until I found the right one for the cover, and then I bought it. I bought the rights to it, right? Because it just fits. The book so perfectly. It's got a noir feeling to it. It's got that Art Deco Miami thing going on there, and that just fits the vibe of the book so well. So it was exciting to get that as the cover. It's a really catchy cover, and uh, I don't have any uh, any education on this, but I would think that that's important, especially when you're, uh, you know, the. The, the competition, there's so much competition, and to get people to look at your book, um, you know, the, the cover, of course, like, it it was catchy to me. You know, this is, it's, it's interesting you bring it up. This, this is the first book that I put out. You know, I won my Eclipse Award. People started bugging me. Write a book. Write a book. Write a book. I thought about collecting stories that I had written, putting out, like, an anthology, and you know, these characters just started to come into my head, and the book began to develop, and um, I went in this direction, and I was excited to be writing fiction, and I was excited that it was going so, so, so well, but when I began to put it together, I realized it was different than all the other work I had done, because normally I, I write a story, if it's long, I'm working with an editor, or if it's not so long, I write it, I turn it in, they will with it, and that's the end of it. This was a process of finding the cover that matched how I felt and finding the type of paper that made me happy and, you know, what's the font going to be? What's the color of the font going to be on the cover? All these things. Who was I going to dedicate it to? Who was I going to acknowledge? And all these things, all of a sudden I realized this is more than just writing a story. It's putting a, an entire package together that... I want people to respond to and that I feel represents me, you know? Absolutely. It's, it's, and it was startlingly different in in preparation to get published than what I was used to. I, I can imagine because, uh, you know, as a turf writer, you know, you, you're reporting on, on what you see in front of you. 
here you're reporting kind of on what's in your in your mind you know your story not not you know and of course i'm sure that a lot of the things that were included in your story incorporated and were stuff and people and uh, things that had happened that um you know you've kind of put your own own twist on for your story i'm old enough that i have some ex- experience what was the term my neighbor who i lent my book to i lent the first copy that i got to my neighbor she's 80 years old and she returns it today and she says i think the term was curriculum vitae i was like i don't even know what you're talking about but she said it's it's a term for life experience packed a lot of life experience here in the book and you know all my experience a lot of my experience with racing comes out here uh interest in history particularly in New York. You know, I grew up in a in a town that had mob characters living in it, and we were warned to stay away from certain kids when we were growing up. Um, my family was connected in Jewish mafia, and back in Prohibition days, we ran liquor down from Canada. <laughs> so, you know, it's all this colorful stuff that I, I was able to draw on to put this this tale of this couple that is, uh, it's, a, it's about a couple that, uh, you know, like a mob couple living up in Queens, and he, he does numbers. He's in charge of numbers in Staten Island and parts of Brooklyn. And I don't know if you know this, but like in the early 90s, it takes place in 91. In the early 90s, New York began to get big in the lottery game. It yes. really began to push lottery a lot. And... And this, in, in, in my story, this encroaches on the numbers that the mob is running, and so they. This is a, this is also the time that crack cocaine began to rise, and uh, so I had my mob shift into crack. And this guy who's been in charge of the numbers, and he's in his mid fifties, doesn't. He's not interested in that. He doesn't want to introduce that to his neighborhood, where he's been doing numbers and has strong relationships with the community as a guy who does numbers. Mm-hmm. And um, so he, he, they, uh, he, you know, he was a good soldier in the mob, and they retire him with a pension to a high-rise in Bell Harbor with his wife. And now he's down there, and his whole life is upended because he has nothing to do. And he's in Florida. He begins to drift. So the story is about is about how. You know, it's about it's about a lot of things, but the, at the core is the relationship between this guy and his wife, and his wife sees what's happening to him, and she begins to make forays into the Miami underworld to create a crime to help her husband get his mojo back. And it's around the track, and this guy's father had also been around the track and doing crimes around the track. So, you know, colorful characters doing crime stuff, but you root for them anyway. You know what, a great thing, I know I'm going on a little bit, but a great, uh, some of you, the book isn't supposed to be out till the 15th, and it's already coming out, Amazon's just shipping it. So, I, somebody read it, because it's a quick read, of a friend of mine, and she writes to me this morning, she goes, kudos for a strong, sexy female character. And that just made me feel great, because I really wanted that to come across. Mm-hmm. You know, so many stories about, especially in mob are uh, they're so male-driven, the women are in the background, 
And, you know, some movie just came out recently where the women take over the whole mob family, but it was a little cartoonish looking. I didn't see it. But I wanted this to be about a relationship, a give and take. They're still criminals. But, <laughs> you know, they still have a relationship going. I hope this is making some sense. It, it does. It, it actually it makes a lot of sense in that people sometimes... Um, you know, they want to create this morality of black and white, good and bad, and um, even people that that might be on the um, you know the the other side of of the law aren't necessarily all you know like demon people. I mean, they they have their emotions, their feelings, and 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 all that as well. And it's just sometimes uh, you know where you grew up, how, how you know what, what your your family was, how you were thrust into it. That um, this is, you know, this is why where your life has has gone to, and uh, I think that's, you know, I think that's important to to remember that they're humans as well. Right, and they're va- people. People who live in life of crime, their value systems are different. I mean, anybody, everybody knows this. Oh, they've seen The Godfather. Sure. You know, and they're torn by their value systems because they go up against, you know, let's say, one person's, you know, let you know the, the classic. Know, representation. I guess it's in Godfather Part Two between uh, the Pacino character and the, the uh, Diane Keaton, his wife, plays his wife. You know, and she's like, "This is you know, this is not this is not what our marriage is supposed to be like." You know, you said you were going to get out. So, you know, value systems are are different. But you're right; it's a humanity thing. So I got Andy Byer to write a blurb for the book, and you know, I didn't tell him what to write. He just wrote what he wanted. And he, one of the things he said was that I had an, I have an irrepressible affection for even the cook, crooks and con men who populate it. And, and it is written affectionately, even though they're criminals. You know, I do like these people. Yeah, I wouldn't I mean, want to meet. I wouldn't want to meet and get hurt by them. Right, you you wouldn't want to be on the other side of them. But no, it, it's kind of the paradox of of the Sopranos, where. You know, Tony is this, this this guy that has no qualms about you know whacking people and 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 doing things. But you know, you, you kind of see the human side when he goes and he is being interviewed by the psychiatrist, and and you see all the issues he has with his family, with his kids. You know, the issues that everyone else has can relate to. Um, you know, where where you're humanizing people. Uh, and and it's it's you know that it's a truth it's a reality that we live in. I, I've lived it myself here in on the racetrack. In that, um, I was in the stable. I, I was in the barn with Jason Service for for years. As a matter of fact, I requested him to come into my barn at Palmetto's because the way they run their operation was very much. Um, you know, very professional, very neat. Uh, the horses were well cared for. There wasn't any, uh, you know, drunk people running around. It, it was it was done outwardly as a first class operation. So, I mean, I only know him from that. I, I don't. I don't. You know, uh, I'm not a, an investigator. I don't go snooping around seeing what what's you know what they're doing here, what they're doing there. I don't know. If the, I would know if if I did see it. But you know, outwardly, these are people that. You know, you've known for years and years and years, and then when uh, something comes down, like you know, the FBI raids the barn area, you're you're kind of taken aback because, I mean, he was always, you know, a, I mean, we weren't friend friends, but he was always cordial. He was always, you know, friendly. Uh, like I said, we never had any problems with him or his staff or his and uh, anything going on there. So you know, it, it's not always a, a black and white issue. I'm certain I don't condone anything that that was done, but um. 
by the same token, uh, everyone that might uh, unfortunately cross that line um, might not necessarily be, uh, um, you know, a serial killer. <laughs> you hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but I think anybody who doesn't live in a bubble or a real controlled environment somewhere along the way is going to know somebody who's done a bad, who's done a bad thing. Right. And, and how you view them becomes complicated. I'll give you a, a good example. Do we have time? We talk? Oh, yeah. So, so I have a friend who was involved in a, uh, not a close friend, but he's a friend, and he was involved in a, in a, in a kind of a notorious crime a few years ago. And it, was a, and it was like my heart went out to him when I saw this because people started talking about the crime, and then I saw it was a guy that I know. I didn't know at first that it was him until people began to talk about it, and I read it. I was like, "Oh my God, that's him!" And he and he 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 had, he had stuck up a guy at a gas station one night because he had a drug problem, and he stuck up a guy at a gas station and um, for money. And then he felt bad, and he gave the guy enough money to pay. He gave the guy enough money back to pay for the tank to fill the tank, and then took off. Mm-hmm. So. So they were a little more lenient on him when he got, you know, arrested and sentenced because he had he got remorse in the moment of the crime. So it's right. complicated. So, you know, I'm not passing judgment on this guy. I know he had a problem, and I know he's got he's got himself back together now, as far as I know, completely. And and it's uh, you know, things happen. People fall. I don't think that's fully what's happening here in this book. These people are. This is they. This is the life that they live. You know, mm-hmm. this is the life that they live. But they're but they're fun. I think that I think the neat thing about having a novella is is that and so, and one other person who's read it, only a couple people have reported back. But the other one said, "I wanted it to go on longer," and that's a great feeling. That's what you want. Yeah, absolutely. So, Part sometimes, two. Sometimes, especially if you're not a great reader, a novel will exhaust you. Yeah, and you're slogging to get to the end. I wanted this to be super crisp, tightly written. You know, fun, fun, weird, fun, action-packed, and um, and you just turn in the pages, and then it's done. And it's like a, you know, hopefully like a little magic trick. You go, wow, that was cool. Abs- That's all, that was what I was searching for. Absolutely. Um, you know, you, we've all had those books that you just didn't want to put down. And, and uh, you know, you're getting called to dinner, you're getting called to do something, and it's <laughs> like, I need to find out what happens next. You know, you just don't want to do it. And that's really the sign of... Uh, of, of, of a great book and of course you know everyone has their own uh you know views of things i mean i i've read books that people have like told me were great and i was like yeah and then there's other books that i thought were great that other people said man I, I couldn't get through the first two chapters so you know to each his own but um i, I think one I, of the things that, that that kind of struck me was that 1991 for me seems like not that long ago (laughs) and it's 30 years ago and you're thinking look at the changes on the racetrack um you know arazi died the other day and i I did a little piece on my in my newsletter on him and and it was basically kind of like it you know he wasn't he didn't turn out he was a great two-year-old and obviously as a three-year-old he kind of um 
Wait, who are you talking about? Arazi. Arazi, yeah. 1991 Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Yep. And yep. I was thinking, like, like, how is he viewed these days? And it's funny that hardly anyone remembers that he bombed in the Derby and, and really, as a four-year-old, he just, or excuse me, as a three-year-old, he really didn't do much of anything. Uh, he won one uh, one little listed stake and one grade two um towards the end of the towards the fall but you know after that breeders cup juvenile i said this is kind of a race where you had this horse and things were still mysterious then like we didn't have uh the ability to watch these races live and we didn't have the ability to download uh the racing post or the time form and 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 get all the information that we have now so when this horse showed up literally no one there from the u.s had seen this horse run and he's, you know, here he is, this little horse. He's a, he's a little offset. He's not that big. And, you know, you're going down the backside. And, like, I think what I tried to focus on was Tom Durkin's call. Because Tom Durkin mm-hmm. was at the height of his powers then. I mean, he was mm-hmm. he was just tremendous. And Tom barely called him the entire race until Arazi was making a move that was so fast that he literally couldn't keep up, and he called him forth, and by the time the words got out of his mouth, he was already challenging for the lead. And then, you know, he, he said the, 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 those that famous kind of quote from that race was, you know, he ran right by him. And, I, you know, that was kind of something that I've never quite seen since. Um, and it was also the feeling that, wow, this horse has never run in the dirt. He's never run left-handed, and he just ran by our best horses, and of course, the, the ninety-one juvenile didn't exactly go on to distinguish itself very much outside of no, Bartrando. But Bartrando was rock, you know. Solid. But Bartrando rock. was right. But the rest of them, at the, but at the time, you don't know that. And I was like, oh my god, this horse just dusted our best horses from last, and he's never even run on a turf. It's like, holy crap, we might be looking at like a superstar. And I, I was too young for, um, for Secretariat, but I was like. You know, this was just how, how things were back then. And it's almost like we can't have that nowadays. And I think part of, uh, I haven't been able to read your story yet, but, you know, being, uh, I was, I was a, you know, in South Florida in 1991 and uh, for a little while. And the racing scene has changed so much. I mean, yeah. we're talking three tracks. You had Calder, you had Hialeah, you had the old Gulfstream, which is is a totally different, um, you know, setup than, than what it is now. I mean, if if you could beam your characters from 1991 to now, they would show up at Gulfstream. They wouldn't even know what the hell it is. They, you know, like like <laughs> this was so. This is the thing, Chuck. So this was this was a lot of the work to make sure I wasn't writing it modern. Right. had to make it 1991. So when you read it, you'll see, you'll see things in there. I mean, there, I have some real things that happened in there and some things that, you know, I mix. There's a lot of factual history type of stuff that mm-hmm. runs through, right, that you'll, that you'll recognize, but also, you know, I, obviously it's fictionalized. So, so here's one of the critical elements that, that got me stuck on the buck. I, I didn't properly, I didn't properly write initially, and I had to do a lot of rewriting because I had I, uh, I I don't want to go into the crime and give it away, but I had to get the pools right. How does this be- how does this thing go down? What do the betting pools look like in '91? 
They're a lot different than they are now. Mm-hmm. So I had to make adjustments. How you know it just wasn't working. That and then Bayer was the one who pointed it out. Andy Bayer, he was like, you know, he called he called me up. He goes, John, I'm reading the book on the couch. It's so great. It's like reading Damon Runyon for the first time again. I was like, this is fantastic. <laughs> he calls me back a day later. He goes, this reads like someone who doesn't know anything about racing. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, I thought you loved it yesterday. But he was right, because as I examined it, I had it all wrong in that stuff. And that stuff needed to be fixed. And I needed to figure out how did these people communicate. So I had to learn about how beepers worked. Mm-hmm. Beepers was a thing. They were. You know, nobody I, now has a beeper. No. Beepers were a thing. So... So all these aspects, you know, and, you know, uh, the, the history, you know, history is a part of this. It jumps back and, back and forth in different time elements, and, you know, I mean, it even goes back briefly for a second to, you know, 1905. You know, and I go back, and, and there's parts of Jamaica race course. So, so there's all this kind of stuff that I need to historically get accurate and not screw it up. It wasn't a, a heavy lift, but... When I'm writing it, I'm just having fun. But then I'm, then when I'm editing in my head, I'm saying to myself, "Wow, John, you've got to make sure you got all this stuff right, so someone doesn't say like that's ridiculous. That never would have happened." Yeah, that's the thing is 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 that I guess you you forget like when you're living in this time and things so quickly are adapted and and uh, you know we talk all the time about. Uh, it wasn't that long ago uh, when we talk about the racing schedule. I said, you know, it wasn't that long ago that, that Naira was running six days a week year round and that, that Gulfstream was a six day a week meet. Gulfstream was a, you know, a January, February, uh, half of March meet, but we were going six days a week. Tuesday was the only dark day. Um, you know, you, you look at Santa Anita, Santa Anita is the same thing. I mean, they can barely fill three days now and, and they used to go six. Uh, we didn't have. Um, pick sixes. We didn't have. Uh, we might, they might have just started having pick sixes, but um, you know we didn't have the the the, the superfectas. We didn't have the pick fives. We didn't have the pick threes. Or you know we had an early double and a late double. You know it was just a different uh, you know different ball game. And of course we had a lot more horses that would run. But and, uh, I, and I'll and I'll take it a step further that, that a lot of people like young people that don't follow that are, that are following the game now might not. No. When simulcasting first started, they didn't simulcast the card no. from, let's say, Belmont. You would see an advertisement in the newspaper, come to live racing at Laurel Park today. With a, and, and, and then the special thing was they were going to show the $750,000 or whatever Jockey Club Gold Cup. They would show one race to simulcast if you could bet on it. And it was like a special thing. I mean, you'd be outside watching the races, and you'd be in your box, and you'd be doing like you're supposed to do, watching live races, not on a computer. And then everyone would rush inside to a television because they were going to show the special race of the right. day, the Jockey Club Gold Cup. Yep. Now, there's 19 TVs with 19 different tracks and four and five horse fields. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just an endless wave of betting opportunities in racing and um the, the full crop is down and the products diluted yeah no doubt but how no, special no doubt. it was back then i mean watching that jockey club gold cup i'm just pulling that race out of a hat sure. 
was like going to closed circuit TV to watch a championship fight. Yeah, no doubt. We we in New York we used to get a race from California a lot of the times, and and like you said, it'd be one race, one special race. And I remember going to the Kentucky Derby, um, maybe fifteen years ago, and being surprised that they at Churchill Downs they they didn't have any other tracks on any of the TVs. It was just Churchill Downs. Um, yeah, and you know it's kind of like. Uh, uh, jarring <laughs> when you're used to being able to bet uh other tracks as a matter of fact i had a horse racing at arlington which of course is you know owned by the same company and, and they weren't showing it i was like what do you mean you're not showing it you have twelve thousand tvs here <laughs> you know there's not you know <laughs> there's not one tv and um you know i i gotta gotta to, to, to turn the channel but uh yeah it, it's some things we take for granted now it's interesting because um one prominent track owner has has made the statement a lot that racing hasn't come into the modern age um and i kind of think like well that's because she wasn't around 25 years ago to see that uh you used to go to the racetrack and and you had your nine races in front of you and that was it and you know now not only do we have literally 24 hour a day betting uh if you betting on uh, japanese racing or hong kong or um Australia, I mean, these are these things are going on in the middle of the night. You could be walking down the street and watch a race from the other side of the world on your telephone at uh, two o'clock in the morning. So you you have a hard time explaining to people like us that things haven't changed uh, because uh, they they certainly have. And and of course, like you said, uh, there's a lot of issues, but um, you know, a lot of it is just a different world we live in. Well, racing. Racing has changed so dramatically that it's un- almost unrecognizable in terms of how the product is delivered to the customer. But what racing has done, and I don't think has properly analyzed, is made a deal with the devil. And the deal is is that we, racing, sacrifice anticipation, build up an excitement in exchange for unlimited betting opportunities. So the dynamic that excites a fan is, is, is really watered down. And it and it's remains the reason why the Kentucky Derby is still the number one race in the country is because it remained immune, it has remained immune to the loss of anticipation. Because people are talking about it in October in the prior year, and in November, you always ha- you already have the clubhouse favorite, the Breeders' Cup Classic juvenile winner, is now the morning line favorite for the Derby. You know, and it, at least on that day. So it's constant build up of anticipation. But back in the day, and I'm sorry, younger listeners, this is just the way it was. <laughs> that anticipation was in a lot of different events. You would have the coffee shop conversation, and you would build in anticipation and anticipation because, frankly, you didn't get to see it a lot. And those horses that came in, let's say, from California to run in some big race, you'd never seen them before. You'd only read about them in the daily racing yes, form. Absolutely. And now, and so, and so, when that happens, what do you have that helps you formulate a picture of this horse? That's your imagination. So, in your mind, you've created. 
what this horse is like in your imagination based on what you've read, and now you're going to get to see it in real life. And there's a good chance that you've blown it up to being a superstar because that's the way it's been written about. And now you're going to see a confrontation that is exciting you because there's unknowns that you've heard about but not seen, and now you're going to see them against those that you know. But now we know everything, everything. And so the imagination's taken out of it. I got to say, and I don't mean this to just try to get back to talking about my book, that's one of the, it was one of the beauties for me of writing about, writing stories that involved racing as fiction was because suddenly I was engaging my imagination again when I hadn't really done it a lot in a long time mm-hmm. around true. racing. And that was super exciting for me. I hope that people that read this book will get that feeling about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was talking to my dad about John Henry the other day, and I thought that that's one of the things, just, you know, what you just said, I think, was is one of the reasons that John Henry was so, such a popular horse. And not only did he compete um, until he was nine years old, but the fact that he went everywhere. That he traveled everywhere. He he wasn't an East Coast horse or a West Coast horse or a Midwest horse. Uh, I mean, he he went everywhere. He raced on the dirt. He raced on the turf. And I said, you know, imagine if you could beam a, a, a the nineteen eighty eight version of of John Henry or nineteen eighty five when he was really good to to, to the modern day. <laughs> you know, when people are having to go two months between races. You know, he, he'd come back on a week. And, yeah, and, and, and so here it is. Across here country. Is. Uh, no, I said, he could run in the Pegasus and the Saudi Cup and the Dubai World Cup and, and maybe even run in one of the turf races in between and win them all. I said, that horse could make $50 million in his, in his, his lifetime. But people if, show up to see him yeah. because they've read about him, and he's coming to your track. Yeah. So, 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 but you haven't seen him. You've read about him. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You haven't seen them, but you've read about them. So it's like the same dynamic is in place. It might sound far-fetched, but I believe it's true. It's the same dynamic in place as the Ringling Brothers Circus coming to your town. What yeah. wonders are they bringing? What wonders are they bringing that we've never seen before? And we'd go to the circus to see the, 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 the aerialists or the guy shot out of the cannon or whatever they were promoting it was that that kind of dynamic was in horse racing and that's why people went to the track but i think it's just it's you know they bled that part out of it i mean look at the look where the majority of the money's coming from right now guys who don't even know the names of the horses they're betting on and aren't even making the bets themselves their computer is doing it yeah pick six this weekend this past sunday was a mandatory payout at Pimlico. I think it was at one point point four million dollars. Mm-hmm. And right before post, it's the pool's at four million dollars, which was gigantic. And then it popped Chuck to six. It went from four to six. This wasn't some guy betting. Yeah. These were computers betting. Sure. These were computers betting into the pool. This isn't this is you know, this is separating human beings from the fundamental joys of Horse racing. That's I, I, a bad thing. I do want to shout out my man Bill did hit that pick six. And and I gotta tell you, he's a much better handicapper than I because I looked at the the, 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 the sequence 
And I said, I can't hit this. So I'm not even going to play it. Uh, props well, to him for hitting up for $31,000. I've got a, I probably shouldn't say this, but yeah. I'm going to say it anyway. I hit it too. There you go. <laughs> Pays for the book tour, John. Come on. Oh, I mean, I probably shouldn't have said this. I'll make you edit it out later. But now, yeah. now, now, now you're going to have a bunch of people uh, with hands out, you know. I you know. Hit the, you hit the I number, John. And, and, and let me hold a hundred. Well, you know, it's 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 going into a retirement account. There, I'm yeah, there you there. go. Uh, I'm getting there. Be- between the sales of the book and then your pick six hit, you know, activity, you, you'll be you'll be you'll be living down in in Bell Harbor, man. You'll be. Uh, I hope that. Well, here's one other thing. I hope that you have me back after you read the book. I would, I would love, love to come back because because I I want to talk to you, and you like historical stuff. I want to talk to you about the central crime, and to see if you can recognize its origins, and then. That would be fun to talk about that. Yeah, that'd be great. That'll be absolutely yeah. great. But I'm not spilling my beans here. No, 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 no. <laughs> anyway. That'll be good, uh, John. I'd love to have you back on, and uh, I do appreciate uh, I appreciate your candor and then your, you know, your willingness to talk about things that a lot of other people aren't willing to talk about. So, uh, you know, that's the only way we're ever going to get over a lot of these problems that we have is, is to, you know, actually admit that we have them. But... Uh, but no, I'm looking forward to reading the book, and uh, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully it, it's a it's a, a real big seller for you. Thank you. Well, I'm trying to get it into. I'm working right now to get it into the independent bookstores in Florida, particularly East Coast, South Florida. Mm-hmm. I've been uh, made overtures to them. Primarily, this book will be sold. If you don't mind, mind, mind me saying, it'll be sold at any decent place you can buy books online. Right. Um, and certainly at the major sellers like Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and and so forth. And um, I hope people like it. I mean, I hope they respond. It's a, it's a, you know, we're in the middle of the summer. It's a beach read, you know, and it's not something that you got to just make a huge investment in. But hopefully, you'll come away and go, "That was fun." <laughs> no, sounds great. And I, like I said, I am looking forward to it and uh, to, to getting a hold of it. And what's it, ninety six pages or ninety five pages? Yeah, it's about 90 pages. Oh, I can... But I think, so just real quick, do you, you remember Clem Florio? Yeah, of course. Well, I dedicated to Clem and to Bert Sugar, who was my first boss at Ring Magazine, and Vic Siegel, the great New York Daily News columnist, whose last piece ever was on the Belmont that Drosselmeyer won. And... Um, Jean Delp, who died this year and was the daughter of the great Bud Delp, the trainer of Spectacular Bid, mm-hmm. a boxing guy that I don't need to mention because you won't know him. And then Bobby Abbo, who ran the greatest bar I ever hung out in and had a rocket, owned a rocket named Immortal Lies. And when Bobby was dying of cancer, they won the DeFrancis Dash. Yeah, I, uh, so we, I think so I remember. These are my late pals that I, I think I, um, book to and like, bring their spirits into the writing. <laughs> I think I had told you, know? you that I, I trained a horse for Bobby Amo. From or for? For. Yeah. So did you know him? He was a great yeah. guy. One of the one of the nicest guys I ever met. Yeah. I met so, him I mean, twice. A, when you lose pals like this, you know, I mean, this is getting old. When you have your friends fall away like this, and 
you know, and I put, and I'm doing this thing, I'm doing this book, and their spirits are in me, and, you know, I mean, then they're like, they're characters, they're great characters, these yeah. people, you know, so. Well, uh, look, like I said, I'm looking forward to reading it, and uh, hopefully it uh, it goes well, I'm sure it will, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, We'll push it everywhere we we go. Um, this is what we need. We need more more excellent writing about uh, about our sport, and even if it's uh, you know through, through the eyes of some shady people. Well, much appreciation, and you you know the show's wonderful, and it's always wonderful talking to you. And and, uh, and thanks for the uh, opportunity to do a little plug. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. All right, John. Thank you. Okay, take care. All right, John. That's John Scheinman. He has a book out, Bal Harbor Blues. Uh, it, it's a it's a very interesting. Um, it's a very, to me, it's a very interesting book because uh, it's kind of my time frame. So anybody that's um, of a certain age will, will probably appreciate uh, uh, going back in time and, and seeing how uh, how racing was. All right, we'll be back with uh, Mr. Carlo Vecareza. Equine, the people that bring you EPO Equine, Unlock, and Bleeder Shield. Now comes Flexify HA, the most advanced scientifically based joint supplement on the market. To find out more, contact me, Joseph Volante, at 215-501-6880. To be the best, give them only the best. BRL Equine. This is the Going in Circles podcast, hosted by horseman Chuck Simon. To become a sponsor, to suggest topics, or for questions, email goingincirclespodcast at gmail.com. And log on to our Facebook page, Going in Circles Podcast. Here's your host, Chuck Simon.